Welcome to The Caleb Show. This is a show about the Bible, about renewing, and about the mind, where every week we discuss how the Word of God is sufficient for day-to-day living, no matter what is happening in your life. You will be challenged to make the Bible an essential part of your thinking and living. Join us now as we investigate the world with the ancient truth of God's Word. Greetings, everybody, and welcome back to the show where we talk about renewing the mind from a biblical perspective. And this is our final episode on our series, Seven Men Who Rule the World from the Grave by Dave Brees. So if you managed to come this far, you have achieved a general education in these seven men who are currently ruling the world from the grave. That is that their ideas are still active, their ideas are still being propagated, their thoughts on the world and how it should operate are still in many ways being forced or or certainly put on to the vast majority of people on this planet today. So now we are on to our seventh figure. This is Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was a chap that lived uh, before a number of these other guys. I think him and Darwin were contemporaries with each other. But Kierkegaard didn't even make it to 45 years of age. He had a very, a relatively brief life. Uh, I'm 45, so I've actually lived longer now than Kierkegaard lived. He died, I think, at 42. So it wasn't long, but the reality was is that he was a prolific writer for the first last sorry the last ten years of his life, and he had a lot of money because his father made a lot of money and he inherited that, and so he put a lot of his time and effort in the last ten years of his life into writing. But the problem with his writings uh, were that the bulk of them obviously were in Danish. And well, they're all in Danish. That's what he wrote in. But they weren't really published outside of Denmark until uh, a number of years after his death. And so it wasn't until the 1940s and 50s that he was discovered by the English speaking world and he began to have a major impact on the English speaking world. So let's consider some of the things that Kierkegaard taught or wrote about. Now, this is, again, coming out of Dave Brees' book, Seven Men Who Rule the World from the Grave. Uh, I, I have not read, I know, I've known of Kierkegaard for a while. I've not read any of his books. I understand, I remember hearing many, many years ago that his books were very difficult to read. And, uh, and that's exactly what Dave Brees says in his book, that his writings are very difficult to read. It was very hard to review his books because everybody seemed to have a different opinion on what Kierkegaard was saying because Kierkegaard himself had a habit of contradicting himself quite regularly. And I think we'll get an understanding of that as we go and maybe even exp- understand why he did that. Uh, now, the difference between Kierkegaard and a number of the other people that we've had uh, reviewed so far, like Darwin and like uh, Karl Marx and like Sigmund Freud, is a number of them, none of those guys really claimed to be believers. Now, Darwin started out at one time nearly going into the ministry, but he ended up walking away from all of that uh, and denied uh, his Christian faith. Marx and all of them were communists, and uh, Dewey was an atheist, and Freud was Jewish, but the only thing he ever said about Judaism was that he never denied being a Jew. He didn't practice it in any sense. 
<clears throat> he was an atheist. And so Kierkegaard is the only one that actually claimed to always be a Christian. Yet, if the proof is in the pudding or if uh, the fruits of a person's life is a, is a qualification of the kind of faith they had, then I think we have to make a decision that Kierkegaard himself did not live by or hold on to the doctrines of the Bible, and certainly not the doctrines of the New Testament. Because one of his books is called Truth is Subjectivity. Truth is Subjectivity. Now, we talked about truth with Dewey. I don't know if you remember that, where the difference between Dewey's understanding of meaning and truth. But Kierkegaard wrote a book called Truth is Subjectivity. And in this, he basically falls down on the side of subjectivity. So you have this idea of objectivity and subjectivity. If you read some of Watchman Nee's books, he talks about the differences between the two. Something that is objective is something that is outside of you. For instance, an object. So you can look at a tree and you can get a billion people together and point at it and they'll say, say, what is that? And they'll say, it's a tree. It's objectively true. It's outside of everybody's self. Okay, and so they all look and look at it and say tree. They may say it in in a hundred different languages, but they're all going to say it's a tree. We know it's a tree. It's growing out of the ground. It's big. It's got branches coming out the top of it. It looks like a tree. Everybody knows what a tree looks like. So that is an objective thing. That's an objective truth. But uh, Kierkegaard wrote that truth is subjectivity. It's subjective. So subjective is is when you would turn around and say, well, what do you think about the tree? Now, you can ask that question, or you can say, what do you believe about the tree? Or you could say, uh, how do you feel about the tree? You can sort of uh, say it in several different ways, and then you're going to get a billion different responses. Some people may say the tree is elegant. Some people may say the tree is strong. Some people may say the tree is, uh, produces oxygen for us to live. Some people may say the tree has deep roots, and so it's a sign of uh, stability and strength. and that kind. Of, so you're going you're gonna to get lots of different views on the subjective side of what is that? It's a tree. So Kierkegaard pushed this idea that subject truth is subjectivity. Now this opens a big can of worms. And the main idea that Kierkegaard is known for is his ideas on existentialism. Now existentialism, <laughs> I first discovered existentialism when I read Schaeffer's works. I don't know if you've ever come across the works of Francis Schaeffer, the God who is there, he is there and he is not silent. These are sort of uh, his, his main books on philosophical thought and he's written, I don't know, 15 or so books, Schaeffer did, but he died in 1980, early 80s, somewhere, 82 I think. 84, somewhere in there. And so he was well aware of Kierkegaard. He interacted heavily with the the hippie generation of the day, and they were reading Kierkegaard at that time. And so Schaefer was involved in all that and was trying to explain existentialism uh, and, and the Bible's response to that in his day. Now, let me read you this paragraph from uh, Dave Brees' book. He says, The result of Kierkegaard's emergence in the middle of the 20th century can be described as theological and philosophical diffusion. Thinking moved from the rational to the irrational. Reason gave way to feeling. Final truth slipped away, and the thinking of the world became a set of self-contradictions. 
theological and philosophical diffusion that is existentialism. So Kierkegaard believed in the individual, and he believed that the individual should be able to decide for themselves whatever. Okay? So this kind of has an idea of rebellion to it. Now, I actually wrote in the bottom of this book, uh, on the next page, I wrote, Existentialism is individuality in revolt. So, if you're an existentialist, you basically have to be in revolt to everything all the time. And that's certainly the case, because think about our day-to-day life. You know, for every person out there, uh, we all have a day-to-day life. We wake up in the morning... We may feel good about ourselves. We may feel like we can conquer the world. We may uh, have a really good breakfast. Maybe we determine we are going to get up early that morning and get something accomplished, and we do that, so we're feeling pretty good. And then we walk outside, and our car has a flat tire. Now, all of a sudden, your mood can change very fast. See, your feelings suddenly well up within you, and they go from uh, a feeling of euphoria to a feeling of deep depression because you've got a flat tire now in your car. Okay? Or whatever the situation. I mean, you name the situation. I'm sure every single person who's listening to this right now has had one of those days where it started out great for about a half an hour or an hour, and then all of a sudden everything went downhill. Okay? So this is the thing with existentialism. For the existentialist, says Debris, the moment is the ultimate thing. It has no necessary causes, no automatic consequences. It is significant because it brings that instant of interaction with the outer world. That instant of interaction is verified not by some categoric epistemology, in other words, objective truth, but by confirming emotion, the feeling. Okay, So the confirming emotion is what verifies the moment that you're in. So if you walk out the door feeling great and your car has a flat tire or you've spilled your coffee on yourself or, uh, you know, who knows, a million different scenarios that could change your day, every single moment is verifiable by the emotion that you're feeling at that moment. That is the idea of existentialism. And then the very next paragraph says, Existentialism is a denial of any consistent morality because everything revolves around you as an individual. What, how do you feel right now? So feelings, like a lot of things, need to be put within a particular uh, framework. And if the framework is simply ourselves, that could change based on our blood sugar level, based on the weather, based on what somebody says to us, based on our uh, anything Literally anything can affect the way we feel about something. And so this is not a way that we should be living our life. We need to be living our lives based on a completely different set of principles. But let me, before I get into that a little bit more, he, the Dave Brees here in his book makes an interesting uh, statement. He, he says his research that he did on existentialism and Kierkegaard, in his research he obviously read the book Existentialism from Dostoevsky to Sartre. So he bought this book from a secondhand bookshop or something because this is what he says. The very book I hold in my hand has in it a penciled remark by, we presume, a college student attending the university where the book was purchased. And here's a quote. This is a quote of the penciled-in statement from a university student studying existentialism. He says, 
All we are is cocaine in the wind, man. Far out, yeah, peace, love, hard drugs. That's what this chap wrote in his book on existentialism that he was reading uh, in university. If that is the message that he got from it, this was probably back in like 19... Oh, I don't know, 72 or something like that. I don't know when his book was published. But it just sounds like the kind of thing that would have come out at that time. And looking at that now, how old is this kid, you know, who wrote this at the time when he was 17, 18, 19, 20? Let's say he was 20 years old in 1975, and he wrote that down. So how old would that make him now? It'd make him 65 years old. So a 65-year-old, you know, this is the age of senators, the age of business owners, the age of employers, the age of corporate executives, the age of uh, seasoned lawyers, doctors, this, I mean, is that who we now have running the country is a guy who, when he was 20 years old, took a class in existentialism and says, all we are is cocaine in the wind. So if that doesn't scare you, then I'm not sure <laughs> what you need to do. But I mean, you need to turn to the scriptures is what you need to do ultimately and, and find out what Jesus is actually saying. And so existentialism is not a framework for anything. It's it's a denial of everything external and only what you as a person subjectively feel like doing right now. That's all existentialism really is. And this is what Kierkegaard was promoting uh, in his life. And so, but let's consider what the scriptures have to say. Now, Jesus comes along and in the context of Jewish culture, which was quite diverse in his day, all right? So in first century Judaism, there was a wide variety of belief systems and cultural expressions and all this stuff. So think about, let's just think about the New Testament for a minute. Just within Judaism, you had your Pharisees, you had your Sadducees, you had your priesthood, and then you, you had what was called the Amharets, the people of the land. And then not mentioned in the Gospels were the Essenes, the Dead Sea Scroll community, uh, and any number of other little factions. All right, You had one of Jesus' disciples was called the Zealot. Simon the Zealot, I think, was his name. And so the Zealots were a whole other group that were very anti-Rome, and they wanted a pure Jewish society and that kind of thing. And so you had these, even within Jesus' disciple group, you had the Zealot, and then you also had... Uh, uh, Matthew, the tax collector. And so a tax collector was somebody who was in cooperation with Rome, collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, but he was Jewish. Okay. And so the zealot over there is looking at Matthew and they're both following Jesus, but, but he's over there, you know, wondering if he could have a chance where he can kill Matthew in his sleep or something like that. So you see, this is even within Jesus's own little group. But in the broader scope of things, you had the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Dead Sea Scroll community, among others. Okay, But then take it another step further out. You had the Romans. The Romans were heavily influenced by the Greeks. And remember when Paul went to Athens? He said, I perceive that you're all very religious, Acts 17. You have got so many gods here. The city of Athens was just, oh, it was like a, a dumping ground. They wanted every possible god to be represented within their... Uh, structure there within their their pantheon of gods, and they even had one an altar to the unknown god to just to cover ones they didn't know their name of, and so you see how that society was so 
so diverse in what it believed that you can see why people would just throw their hands up in the air and say, well, let's just say it's all true and that'll cover, that'll make everyone feel good about themselves because it's all true and then we can maybe have some kind of world peace. But then you come with the Jewish people that would come along and say, no, there's one God and there's one, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And so he was promoting himself ultimately because he's, you know, God. Uh, he he was God on earth. He was uh, the incarnation of God on earth. So he was promoting uh, himself to be the one way, the one truth, the one life. In 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 con- not contradiction, but in uh, you know against all the other groups that were out there. So it didn't matter who you were identifying yourself with. You had to come to terms with who Jesus was. Okay. So with existentialism, uh, which has now grown today to the extent that, that postmodernism is, ask, is is making the statement, it's not, is there truth? It's which truth do you want to believe? So since that's kind of the mantra of postmodernism, that all it's all true, just pick the one you want to follow. Ultimately, you have to come to terms with who is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus has something to say to Darwin. He has something to say to Freud. He has something to say to Marx. He has something to say to Dewey. He has something to say to John Maynard Keynes. And he has something to say to Kierkegaard. Jesus has something to say to each one of these men and their ideas. And I've tried to sort of put little nuggets of that in each one of these talks to provoke us to be thinking about the world around us and how we can engage with it and understand Jesus better. So Jesus entered this world of diversity. He interacted with the Roman centurions. He interacted with the people of the land, the prostitutes and the beggars and the leopards at the very lowest level of society. But then he also interacted with Nicodemus, who was the teacher of Israel. This guy would have had he would have been the head of his own synagogue he would have been the guy that uh if if you were an up and coming rabbi and you were teaching people you would go to him as your as your reference you would go to him as your source of understanding for certain things so he was a teacher of teachers and nicodemus interact jesus interacted with him at 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 a at a level that nicodemus needed to hear the truth that jesus was saying so you see jesus is able in his life to interact with anybody who comes along his path he had an answer for each person and so none of this well i believe that and you believe that so let's just get along jesus actually was coming along and saying but i have a way of life i have a manner of life i have a uh, a mindset of life, a belief system, a worldview that can bring peace. It can bring a clarity of conscience, a clarity of thinking. It can bring a healing of relationships, a healing of the inner soul. My way is a way that can provide peace and salvation to everybody, anybody who comes along. And the reason why Jesus was able to say that is because he was the incarnate God. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus knows exactly how we operate as people. 
He knows how we should function. Therefore, he knows how to fix the way we are. Now, all of these seven guys that we've talked about have come along and they've thrown out their idea and their their way that people should live, and each one has had showed philosophical flaws that have ultimately failed society. Look at the last 50, 60 years since World War II. Is society in Europe, in America, in Australia, in Canada, is it better off in China, in Russia, in South America? Is it better off now than it was 50, 60, 70 years ago? Now, I'm not saying 50, 60, 70 years ago we lived in a utopia, I'm just saying, are we better off than we were then? And I would argue, no, we're not really better off. You know, okay, you may say the world has internet. You may say more people have running water, things like that. But there's more conflict now. Uh, There's more interracial issues, more economic issues. There's more political collapsing going on. All these things. So let's turn to Jesus and say, what do you have to offer? How can I arrange my, my life around your teachings to discover what you what your followers have taught as the way of peace and life and truth and salvation that's what we need to be doing and so when we look at kierkegaard and see that it's all about the self and we are not about the self we are about loving others we are about living out truth we are about living out uh, a life that glorifies god that's the most important thing and so thank you for taking this time to go through these talks. We finished this book. Perhaps we'll do another book review down the road that won't be quite so long. Uh, but this is a show where we talk about renewing of the mind through the Bible. And uh, it'll, I think, always be encouraging and challenging to you. So God bless you and have a good day and enjoy your Bible reading.